0: Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. In Season 1, I had two different guests join my show to talk about different aspects and stories of the wine industry in Michigan. Those guests were John Braganini from St. Julian Winery and T.R. Shaw, who is an author and also sort of a wine historian in Michigan. And in today's episode, I have a new guest who's reached out to me after listening to some of the earlier shows, Steve Salisbury, who's also a Michigan wine historian and has been involved in the industry since the 1960s. He's also the author of the Facebook page, If Vines Could Talk, the wine industry has a big footprint in Southwest and Western Michigan. And it has endured through Prohibition, the Great Depression, two world wars, and many other hardships over the 200 plus years in this state. So if you're out there today listening at home, hit the pause button for a minute and break out some wine glasses, pop a cork, pour some of your favorite vintage, and then sit back and relax as we explore some lost history that perhaps... Only the grapevines remember. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you for taking time to be on the podcast today.
1: Well, it's great to be with you.
0: So, Steve, could you take a minute to introduce yourself? How did you become interested in the history of the wine industry in Michigan?
1: Well, I think uh, the short answer is because it's my history. Uh Uh, My family has been involved. With, uh, with the wine industry in Michigan since the 60s. And in fact, my mm. father was the first person who planted vinifera, which is basically French grapevines in the, in the soils in Southwest Michigan. Um, we, uh, in fact, my father partnered with Len Olson, who was the founder, one of the founders of Tabor Hill Winery. And in oh. the late 60s and early 70s, the, the two of them collaborated quite a bit on growing grapes and making wine and that sort of thing. And in fact, my first job while I was still in high school was working at Tabor Hill for Len Olfen. Hmm. So the wine industry
0: goes back to as early as the 1780s in Michigan, is that correct?
1: That's right. When the French explorers first uh, started kind of nosing around um, the peninsula, you know, they discovered that there were grapes growing on the shores, uh, I believe, of the Detroit River. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then Joseph Sterling was one of the early winemakers going back to about 1863. He was the first one to plant um, cultivated vineyards, and uh, started with a couple of acres, increased it to, I don't know, a dozen or so, and actually had a winery.
0: Wow, okay. And then so it started moving westward as the state began to, wow. um, the pioneers started heading west?
1: I think, yeah, I think that's that's a simple way to put it. I think that uh, um, a couple of things happened. First of all, the, uh, the vineyards around Detroit, Southeast Michigan, they mm-hmm. were hit with a lot of rot and disease and mm-hmm. really wiped that all out by the end of the 19th century. And at the right. same time, you know, farmers were starting to move in, kind of to your point, starting to move into West Michigan and planting fruit and vegetables, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, a lot of fruit trees, peaches, cherries, and of course, a lot of grapes
0: right okay
1: so can we explore some
0: of the era skipping ahead a little bit in time now to the era of prohibition and how it impacted the industry during those years
1: i think that's an interesting chapter in american wine growing history because Uh in a lot of other in a lot of other states prohibition really wiped out the industry whereas Mm. in michigan before prohibition, farmers were planting Concord grapes and other juice grapes um, for making juice. And then um, probably more by a stroke of luck than anything in 1919, just before prohibition, Welch's uh, opened a plant in Lawton near Papa. Right. And okay. that provided the, the, the vehicle, if you will, for farmers to Um, sell their grapes for juice, right? They couldn't make wine anymore so they could make juice and they continued to plant juice grapes, primarily Concord, some Niagara, other other varieties through the 1920s so that Mm -hmm. when Prohibition ended, we really had a running start, right? We had all the vineyards. They didn't, in, in Missouri, for example, they ripped them all out. They ripped out almost all the vineyards.
0: When
1: prohibition hit well we didn't do that because we had an outlet for them right so in some ways prohibition was good for us in that it allowed for uh, well between prohibition and welch's it allowed for the continued cultivation of grapes so then in 1933 even before prohibition was repealed um, wineries started to, you know, they saw the writing on the wall, they knew it was imminent, and, and it uh-huh. started started opening opening wineries. In fact, Bronte, which is now long gone, Bronte was a winery near Hartford, okay. and uh, it opened like six months before Prohibition.
0: Oh, so it did choke off a few of the businesses when Prohibition, they, did, they didn't, weren't able to transition over to juices or
1: well I, I as far as I know, and the research that I've done, um, I don't really know what happened to the wineries that might have been in existence before prohibition. Okay. It was really more right. around the fruit um, I see you know we had uh, we had St Julian that mm-hmm. started in nineteen twenty one well that was right in the middle of prohibition, but, right, right. but they began their wineries. You talk with John Braganini, so you know, mm-hmm. right? Um, <laughs> Up in Canada, yeah. Yeah, they started in Canada when Prohibition mm-hmm. happened. They moved across the river, mm-hmm. and then ultimately, I think about 1936, they moved into Pawpaw, right, uh, which was then kind of the center of the the grape growing community in Michigan at the time. Right. Any
0: any f- interesting stories from that time period that you could relay that came across in your s- research?
1: Um, not not specifically. I think what was interesting to me was that in 1933 and about that period, there were a number of wineries that started. Of course, you already had St. Julian. I mentioned Bronte. Uh-huh.
0: Um,
1: there was uh, Molly Pitcher, which is another winery long gone that started down near Lakeside, Harbor in right. Southwest oh. Bering County. Okay. Um, and, and so you had a, kind of a plethora, right, at the repeal of Prohibition. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until 1970, when Len Olson uh, obtained his winery license that we had another winery start up. It was like wow. north of 35 years between that initial sort of surge and, and then the next winery.
0: Wow, that's interesting to know. I had no idea there was that long of a gap between the establishments of the wineries. So how did the industry evolve post-Prohibition? I mean, was it just because they had a head start and they'd kept their grape fields, and was there more to it that the industry changed in?
1: Well, I think that, you know, that was the running start that I referred to earlier, right? They had all okay. of these juice grapes, Concord, Niagara, Delaware. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an interesting grape name. Um, <laughs> Sounds had, familiar to me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and yeah. so they had all of these grapes and which gave them the opportunity to, again, start making wine very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And then over time, um, you know, as we as we became more educated with the different kinds of grapes and uh, and so forth, people started experimenting with French hybrids. And French hybrids are basically a,
0: mm.
1: a, a kind of a clone, if you will, of a French grape um, and an American grape. The French grape giving it a little higher quality fruit for winemaking, and the American rootstock, if you will, giving it a little bit more. Um, vigor to survive in American soils, and so oh, okay. so in fact, Bronte, uh, w- which still amazes me, Bronte and Keeler produced something like three hundred thousand gallons of Baco Noir French hybrid grape wine wow. in, in the fifties, and just to put that in perspective, that's like all of saint julian's production today so wow it was huge and even molly pitcher produced well into the hundreds of thousands of gallons of wine in the 50s and 60s and 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 so there was kind of this evolution through the 60s to start moving toward uh, french hybrids as i mentioned what they what those were a little bit ago And then people started experimenting with vinifera. So vinifera are French grapevines, like Cabernet Sauvignon Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay. Oh, okay. And like I mentioned at the beginning, my father was the first one who planted Chardonnay um, in Southwest Michigan. And Len Olson at Tabor Hill was actually the first person to plant them commercially. And that was in 1969 and Hmm. and so um and at the same time there was similar activity going on up in the uh traverse city area i'm i'm less in tune with all of that history but i know that i know that bernie rink was starting in the mid 60s experimenting with uh, with french hybrids and and that sort of thing
0: okay i have a question for you i just because i'm not Super versed in the the types of grapes. During the Prohibition period, was there um, a different type of grape used for the juice grapes, or are they are the same basic type of grape that is used for winemaking? I mean, did they have to change their crops or
1: no? Because going into Prohibition, really the only thing we had in Michigan was conquered Concord grapes. And, okay. And uh, and I believe we had some Niagara, which is basically a white grape, um, but it's the, of the same sort of variety as Concord. It's an American, strictly American variety, made pretty oh, okay. much for juice and jelly.
0: Um, oh, interesting. So they're so Saint Julian's. Even though they were operation before that, they were just they they weren't really here until post prohibition in terms of wine growing grapes, they because they, they were up in Canada. That's correct. That's right. a, just, I'm trying to think my way through this. So the vineyards were primarily juice grapes at that point. Then They
1: were juice grapes, yes. Yeah, okay. There so the French name.
0: didn't have any like uh, wineries over on the east side of the state that had been established. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, that's interesting. Okay, so then after post-prohibition, they were able to start this big surge of wineries and Begin with changing some of the crops out to more wine grapes. Is there a distinction between the type of grapes used for wine?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, I probably went that, through that a little bit quickly. So, yeah, so there are you know, thousands of different varieties of grapes, right? So, right, where, to keep it simple, let's talk about three buckets.
0: Okay, okay. good.
1: There's juice grapes like Concord, Niagara, even Delaware, okay. to, a, to a lesser extent. But those are really American varieties, and those I would call juice grapes or jelly grapes.
0: Right? And those are the kind that you buy at the grocery store as well, or are those different?
1: Those tend to be different varieties because they typically okay. come from California or South America. But I gotcha. Okay, and they tend to be seedless. Um, okay. Concord and Niagara are not seedless. Oh, okay. Some people call them table grapes. I, I'm a little reluctant to call them table grapes because they have seeds. Mm-hmm. And, I see. Okay. And and so you had the juice grapes conquered Niagara Delaware, and then you okay. have, you know, we slowly moved into hybrids like Baco Noir or Vidal Blanc or Saval Blanc, oh, okay, uh, which started appearing, probably in the mid to late '40s through, through uh, well into the 60s and even the 70s. And then oh, okay. Nifra, you know, been, so, so those are backups. So those are the hybrids, right? Bac right. Noir, Save a Blanc, Vidal Blanc. Um, uh, and there are others. Uh-huh. And which, by the way, are still grown as our juice grapes are still grown, but the hybrids right. are still grown. And they're they're typically used in blends today. Um, okay. You don't see many wineries uh, labeling their wine Saval Blanc or Midi Blanc. There are a few that do, but you don't see a lot of those French hybrid grapes. Are really more used for blending in wines. Today. Okay. Okay. And then the last bucket is French Vinifera, and those are the vines that produce what's known globally as the, the, the fine wines of the world, right? Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, I see. Sauvignon Blanc, okay. uh, Cabernet Franc, uh, Chardonnay, Riesling, and, the you know, the mm-hmm. list, it's a long list. And those are the wines that you're going to find predominantly in, in the wine retail shops. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's what... Uh, California and the West Coast is really founded on is, okay. is successfully growing all of that vinifera. For Michigan, mm-hmm. it took us a while to get there. It wasn't really until the 70s that you started seeing vinifera planted in any in any real quantity. Um, mm-hmm. Now there's there's a lot more of it. I think global warming has helped Michigan uh, quite a bit in that end because we're able to grow vinifera now in places we could never even think about doing it before. Oh, okay. So like when you go up North, they have a lot of Riesling, they have a lot of Pinot Brie um, and other vinifera that 60, 70 years ago you couldn't grow up there. It was too cold.
0: Yeah. That, that answers a lot of questions. Cause I've always had a bit of confusion on the different types of grapes. That makes it a little bit more simpler to understand so the viticultural areas now, that's something that we, I saw in the information you sent to me. How do those relate to the industry in Michigan?
1: That's a great question. And um, so I think, first of all, AVAs, I'll just call them AVAs for short, right? Standing
0: for American Viticultural Areas, right? Correct. That's correct. Okay, well, good. <laughs>
1: so AVAs provide a bit of a geographic pedigree, if you will okay Um, some wine makers like their consumers their customers to know you know where the where the wine is coming from where the grapes are coming from to make the wine okay and 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 some consumers want to know that as well so you know and you know this when you go to a wine retail shop you'll see Mm -hmm. cabernet sauvignon from napa valley well the napa valley is an aba in michigan we have uh, depends on how you count them. We have four or five. Okay. Um, I live kind of in the middle of the Lake Michigan Shore AVA, which is a very large AVA that extends basically from from Fenville to Kalamazoo to the state line to Lake Michigan. Okay.
0: Um, That's one of the older ones too, isn't it?
1: it uh, that. It, yes, it was. Okay. So the Fenville, there's actually a Fenville AVA. Which is tiny and it's
0: okay that's the oldest one that's can, the oldest uh, one it was actually right I believe, okay
1: i believe it was like the third aba ever
0: in the whole country in the
1: country yes
0: wow yeah
1: um i know it was one of the early ones mm-hmm. and then lake michigan shore and then you have two um near traverse city you have the lake leal or sorry the leelanoa peninsula aba which is um Along Lake Michigan, and then you have Old Mission Peninsula AVA, which is that finger that goes up into the Grand Traverse Bay.
0: Right. Okay. Um,
1: so you have those two AVAs, and then the last one is the tip of the mitt, which is basically the top okay. part of the mitten. Okay. Is 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 another AVA, and um, so back to your question about how does it relate? I think. Right so this this pedigree um gives the consumer the ability to understand perhaps a little bit about the climate and the soils that are um that are relevant to that particular geography so in case in the case of the lake michigan shore we have a lot of sand and loam and clay and uh, some gravel and you know it's it's kind of like it was a uh, glacier dumping ground, <laughs> uh-huh. okay. um, but it provides a very interesting mix of soils. Um, and you know, the, the vineyard manager will choose vineyard sites based on the, the, the soil composition, but at any rate, that's uh-huh. kind of the makeup of the Lake Michigan shore. Old mission peninsula and Lelanoa peninsula are more limestone and actually volcanic ash. Um, oh. There, there's a long inactive volcano in the Upper Peninsula, and when it was active, it spewed ash over most of northern Michigan, and a lot of that landed near, some of it landed near Traverse City, and it adds uh-huh. to the, um, adds to the soil makeup there. So, so oh. when you when you drink a wine from Near Traverse City one of those two ABAs it's likely to have a little more minerality to it and
0: interesting and what I mean Ooh. by
1: that is it, it'll smell or taste like whetstone um, some people say it smells like my driveway after it rains <laughs> um, okay that may not That's... sound terribly attractive but there's definitely sort of this um, limestone Fragrance to the woman, Okay, you don't you wow. don't have that as much here in the Lake Michigan shore, um, and I think so. For me, in my perspective is I think that should be a um, should be a, a a sign for for the vineyard managers on what kind of grapes to grow. Rieslings and uh, um, Pinot Grigios, Pinot Gris, those do uh-huh. very well up north because the wines really embrace that minerality. Whereas down here, you don't have as much of that. And so more Bordeaux-like varieties do better down here, like Cab Franc, which I think huh. is the grape for Southwest Michigan. Cab Franc, um, Merlot, even Cab Sauve, um, Cabernet Sauvignon is a little bit harder to grow down here, but we have a couple of wineries that do a pretty good job with it. Um, but those are those are Bordeaux varieties that um, they don't mind the limestone, and depending on where you're buying the wine from, you might still pick up some of that um, wet stone. Uh huh. Um, but the, they're not as dependent on it as I think the uh, the more German-like varieties are, like Riesling or Pinot you know, Grisling. Okay. So wow. that's kind of a long answer to your question about AVAs. Well, so you have all
0: of these different variables. You have the AVAs, which if I understand correctly, has different soils in each of the different areas which are going to have an impact on how the wine tastes and smells a little bit, degree and then you also have the different varieties of grapes, which will have the different levels of taste, which can vary from sweetness to sourness to acidity and, and whatnot. Correct. Is that, would that be a fair assessment? So basically, yeah. just give a, a consumer some variables to get a feel for what they like after they've sampled some wine. Like there may be lean more towards uh, an AVA in a particular area because they seem to like the types of uh, vintages that are being, that they're getting at those different wineries, or yeah, I think that's, okay. I think
1: that's fair. One thing also is, um, it's not just the soil; it's also the weather. So just to, to clarify that. So okay. So like, um, in Napa Valley in California, for example, you have mm-hmm. Napa Valley and Sonoma Valley. Well, they're basically right next to each other. The difference is that Napa's behind a bit of a mountain range which means it has a slightly different climate. Otherwise, uh-huh. they'd be very similar styles. And, you know, I know people that prefer Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon over Sonoma. Um, huh. You know, I, for example, prefer, I really like Pinot Noirs from Oregon. Um, and there's just something about that, the climate and the soils of the Willamette Valley, that's the name of the ABA there. That huh. that make that more intriguing to me. Um, so yeah, so I think you know it's it's a it's a geographic pedigree that consumers can use to help them, um, you know, when they're when they're selecting wines. And I think I think it would be fair just to mention this. Uh, AVAs is the term for the United States. You have okay. geographic distinguished distinctions everywhere on the planet, right? There's, okay. there's Bordeaux, right. there's Alsace, there's the Rhone Valley, there's Tuscany, right? Mm-hmm. These are okay. all they're all wine regions, and mm-hmm. and they're typically labeled as such. Um, they're just not called ABAs because they're not American.
0: They're not American, they have, right? right. Okay. Cultures. I just thought of a story that, that kind of helped, um, that kind of clicked when you said that about the different types of weather in the different areas. There was a story when I was researching South Haven and it was one of the old um, references on the history of South Haven. It was a bio- biography that was written and I was doing a podcast episode and it was interesting to note that there's, I think it was the peach industry up there, mm-hmm. that at one point, the peach industry all the way down to St. Joseph There was a very bad winter, and all of the peaches up and down the coast, all the crops died that year, with the exception of South Haven. And because they had a particular curvature to the shoreline, they didn't get the gusts of the wind that came across and wiped out the other orchards. And I think of that, and I go, wow, I wonder if that that kind of thing has a variable on... on Maybe South Haven isn't that close to one of the... The second, the the original AVAs is that well, South I...
1: Haven is in South Haven is in the Lake Michigan Shore AVA.
0: Okay, so that is a so that would have a different bearing. So I, you know, gotta you gotta think that climates like that, or just coming off the lake, um, because they mentioned it was something like it was a, the the curvature of the shoreline if impacted the way the waves and the wind hit across the the uh, the area that that year, and it just didn't. That those they were able they became a a dominant peach supplier up and down the coast for yeah. the next couple of decades following that because uh, all the other ones had to start over again, you know and uh, just interesting how you know the, so the weather patterns do have an impact on crops as oh, you know and fruit in the fruit industry, so that's interesting to note definitely. so the newest the newest one is the tip of the mitt. How does that differ in soil from say the other one near? driver city
1: that's a great question i i don't I, i'm not that up on that one
0: that's pretty new it's a new one it's like new like in the last 10 years
1: uh, oh yeah um yeah i forget five six years ago i think maybe um and i'm i candidly i'm least familiar with that i know <laughs> that um like for example between there's no real ABA between saugatuck and driver city i mean there's there's like what 150 miles of shoreline there that has no ava um yet there are there are a couple of wineries and a few vineyards but what i've discovered is that there's just so much sand and it's just there's not enough Hmm. substance um to the soil there's not enough clay there's not enough loam it's just too sandy and 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 so that kind of slows down you know the hmm. development of vineyards.
0: Vineyards require a very basic very precise type of soil to to survive
1: well, for the most uh, I don't know precise but they certainly require more than pure sand. <laughs> I, okay, okay, that's they, good. Um... Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you could you couldn't go down to Fort Lauderdale and start a vineyard on the beach and be successful.
1: <laughs> no, um, in fact, my wife and I just spent two months in Charleston, um, mm-hmm. and there's no real wineries in South Carolina. But right, that, that yeah. has more to do with the climate than it does the soil. Mm-hmm. It's just too hot. Uh, well, it's too
0: hot. Yep. The AVA's in the United States, they all kind of follow the same geographic line? Oh, same latitude. Uh, um, the same latitude. That's yeah. what I was looking for, around the globe. Then. Okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have... Well,
0: similar. Similar. Uh,
1: uh, similar. It's kind of interesting because um, we're here in Baroda. We're mm-hmm. even even with Rome. Oh, okay. And so most of the vineyards in Europe are north of that. Uh, hmm. Uh, so I would say we're a little bit more south than probably Europe, but your mm-hmm. point is your point is a good one. Um, you know, when I look at when I look at um, the wineries, the, the wine areas around Traverse City, um, very similar in style to to German wines, right. you know, Alsatian wines um, but they but they even they are, uh, latitudinally uh, further south than mm. than those regions in, in Germany. But generally speaking, you make a good point that the wine growing regions across the globe kind of fit in this band of, mm-hmm. of range of latitude um, between, yeah. like, between like 40 and 50 degrees. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, if you follow the coffee industry around the globe, they're close to the equator. And you can see that all a lot of the coffee-growing countries are all in the same latitude around the equator. You know, Colombia all the way over to, you know, the ones that are the few coffee-growing areas that are in Africa and so forth. They all uh, are in that same band, and they also have to have a high mountain range. You know, you can't just be in the band, but you've got to be at the right altitude. So all of these factors involve just with coffee and then you have the same thing I guess with the the successful or the success of a, of a vineyard that's right. it's a f- fascinating uh, study when you really look at it so how could people engage with you if they want to ask you more questions in I and I tell me a little bit about the the Facebook page that you have there about in vines could talk
1: so I started so I started at vines could talk kind of um, social to get some social media presence i uh-huh. started that a couple of years ago and started off with doing predominantly just wine reviews um uh-huh. and over the last couple of years i've uh, included some other features in there so like I do uh-huh. winery wednesday where i feature a a winery um uh-huh. and, and that sort of thing but but it's really instagram facebook um I try to post now daily, either some sort of historical tidbit, a tidbit about Michigan or uh-huh. a wine review. Um, I am thrilled to have this conversation with anybody who's interested. And uh, uh-huh. probably the easiest way to reach me is through one of those, one of those mechanisms, if I uh-huh. could talk, um, Um, And, you know, this year I actually have a couple of engagements where I'm going to be doing some wine tastings. Uh, Okay. I have an engagement in Chicago in June Uh to do a a Michigan-slash-historic-wine tasting where I'll take over five or six different wines that are grown here in Michigan and Uh uh, talk about those wines, do a wine tasting, provide a little history, um I'm doing more of that now. Um, you know, navigating the interesting liquor licensing laws of Michigan to make sure we you know do it upfront and legal.
0: and legal. okay, They change a little bit over the years, huh? Okay, so, and so I'll put the link to your Facebook group in the show note descriptions for anybody that wants to reach out. Um, and, and find out more about what you have going on and maybe even attend one of your events. Any other information that you want to share, Steve? Um. Off the top of your head, what are some of the standout wineries in Michigan that, if somebody's just getting into checking out the wine industry and maybe they want to, maybe they're new to the state, they want to go a little road tripping this summer and have a good experience with? Maybe doing a taste test at some of the wineries. Where should they go? What would be your recommendation to start?
1: So the you know the standard answer to this kind of question is it depends, um, right? <laughs> of course. Now I am I am a dry wine fan and particularly a dry red wine uh-huh. fan. Um, although, okay, I've certainly enjoyed the uh, the great white wines, especially coming from. Leelanau and Traverse City, Old Mission Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're interested in kind of the higher end, finer uh, finer lines uh, here mm-hmm. in, in Southwest Michigan, we have uh, Lemon Creek, which is technically in Berrien Springs. They're very close to Baroda. Uh, Domain Berrien, okay. the Blonde, those three are doing some really good stuff um, further north, you have Wincroft, which is actually, the address is Pullman. Um, Jim Lester okay. is the owner winemaker there. He goes back in the industry multiple decades. He's uh, he's quite the professional. There's no question about it. Um, Madalis, okay. Madalis is located in Fenville. And I think, you know, St. Julian is doing some great stuff with their Bragganini line. You don't mm-hmm. necessarily think yeah. of St. Julian. Uh, John might take exception to this, but you don't ne- You don't necessarily <laughs> think of fine table wine when you think St. Julian, but they do have this Bragginini label that I think is outstanding. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a handful.
0: Yeah. I know St. Julian has some great programs for families and, and tours with kids and they've got a, a couple of summer programs where they you know they tour kids through there and they show them have them pick some grapes and that sort of thing and, and show them the whole process so that's, that if you're looking for a family type thing St. Julian's has got some stuff yeah, there
1: they are one of the few that do winery tours um, there aren't many mm-hmm. that do that anymore have you been to that facility
0: I have not. I've driven by it many times when I've been in Paw Paw, but I've not gone in and I need to do that. Uh, uh, John said that I would have a free glass of wine if I went in there.
1: <laughs> well, he's, he's quite the host, and he, he uh, hosted yeah. me a couple of years ago for half a day, and we toured the winery. Uh-huh. It's just, it's never ending. It's huge. It's just gi- uh-huh. gigantic. Um, yeah. And you know, they have lots of different products. As a result, Mm -hmm. up north, just to round out, you know, the list, um, last fall, my wife and I went up to Traverse city and we spent four or five days. And I have to tell you the two wineries up there that just really, um, impressed me the most were Bluestone and, um, which are both located near Leland and they're off, and it's okay. great. The other wineries are all doing some really good stuff, but those two just really turned my head. Good hmm.
0: stuff. That's great. Yeah, I tend to gravitate towards um, red wines myself uh, yeah. these days, so I uh, would say I'd probably take more of your advice than some people with, their, with the white wine recommendations. Uh, is there a particular... Vi- uh, uh winery that you would lean towards more with say red wines as opposed to white wines or vice versa
1: um no because i think they all do both fairly well um, okay. I, a, okay a couple of others that i should mention are white pine and st joe and lake michigan vintners and benton Harbor. they're both doing some really okay. great um making some really great wines what I, you know, this is this is sort of my, Steve's perspective. I think our strength is our weakness. We can grow just about anything. Uh-huh. And what I'd like to see us do right. is really focus on a handful of varieties that we really do well, in, instead of trying to make wine out of every kind of grape that ever was known to be in
0: all right getting too just just spread too thin right
1: and and so like Mm -hmm. you know Cobb Franc I think Cobb Franc is the red grape for southwest Michigan Mm -hmm. I'd like to see our winemakers really focus on that um a little bit more and 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 make some really stand-up product they already do uh, right Right. just focus on a little bit more and make it even more Stand
0: up. It's an interesting marketing position. I guess you could find a winery that specializes in a very particular type of grape and just focused on that and achieve some great success by just refining it and getting it the best quality out of that grape than to try so many different types. I, you know, that's.
1: Yeah, and I understand part of it. I mean, it kind of gets back to the climate discussion, right? Some. Some varieties are mm-hmm. more susceptible to bad weather than others, and so you need to have mm-hmm. a, a variety of varieties to um, mm-hmm. you, to mitigate any impact of a particularly frosty winter or like polar vortex like we had a couple of years ago. Um, right. But to your point, yeah, let's let's pick three or four even and really focus on mm-hmm. those. Um,
0: that's yeah so that makes sense (laughs) okay great well you can find that opinion as well as many others when you visit if vines could talk um it's been a pleasure having you here on the show today steve this is great and um i'm sure that you post upcoming events that you're doing in the community or around southwest michigan or even if you're over in chicago you make notice to yeah. People, so if they want to come check it out and, and hear more about uh, vines and grapes and wine recommendations and everything else, um, you know, if they have questions about that. So it's been a pleasure having you on, and that's going to conclude today's episode. If you Would like to reach out to Steve, you can find his link in the show note descriptions. And if you would like to reach out to me, you can always find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening. You can put your wine glass down now.